we thought we should extend it to a bit of an hour and a half to two hours if time will avail us. Uh, as we all know, today marks an International Healthcare Worker Safety Day. Uh, the objective of today is uh, patient safety and increasing public awareness, engagement, and en enhancement of global understanding and global solidarity. So we need to take action to promote patient safety. So a clinical care platform has been created so that we can promote service delivery, patient safety, patient care. Like I've said, I'm not running this show alone. I'm with my colleague, Dr. Mawela. And uh, if I introduce him, uh, we currently have 54 participants in the platform. Uh, just a house call rules. Please, if you can keep your mic off, unless if you're speaking, keep your video off, unless if you are one of the speakers. And then if you've got any questions, please raise your hands. Or if you don't feel like, you can also pose your question on the chat box. Please do not forget to put your name, full names and details, and your designation number, either MP number or whatever number, on the chat box so that you can get your CPD point. Colleagues, without any further waste of time, let me introduce my colleague, my friend, and a doctor, Dr. Mawela, who is the CEO of Aqua Foundation, which is the foundation that has made this platform to be available for all, all of us so that we can educate each other. He's currently a COVID command lead in the province as well as in Kankala district. Dr. Mawela, please take us through and introduce our first speaker. Thank you. Dr. Mawela, your, your mic is mute. You may need to unmute your mic. Thank you, Dr. Segole. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Segole and colleagues for attending this important session, but importantly to appreciate our guests for honoring um, this important time um, to join us as we celebrate this important day. Um, today we celebrate the World Patient Safety Day, and this year's theme is uh, Safe Health Workers, Safe Patients. So for today, we are going to look at the series of topics that are going to explore what this theme means and also to explore the interface between the safety of patients and that of health workers. Um, our mission as a clinical care platform is to improve patient care with evidence-based education and mentorship that enhances understanding clinical practice and competence of health professionals. Today, we celebrate World Patient Safety Day. Patient safety is an important element of quality improvement. And, then, and the key uh, message around patient, patient safety is that no one should be harmed um, in healthcare. However, globally, over 134 uh, million adverse events have been reported on an annual basis, which contribute to 15% to, to of all healthcare expenses in specific um, countries. We know that four out of 10 patients are harmed, especially in primary healthcare and ambulatory settings. South Africa is not immune uh, from this um, 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 global um, issue. We have seen an increase in, uh, in the volumes of malpractice claims. We might not have the actual you know, numbers to say how many patient safety events do we have you know in the country but the number of claims by the community against the health system sort of tells us that we are sitting on a huge problem 
but we have also seen an increase in the cost per claim due to unsafe care in the country. It is currently estimated that, that about 1.4 billion um, worth of claims has been um, 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 lodged against the state um, in South Africa. So just a few seconds, I just want to mute few people. Thank you. So just to say that uh, this is what we are celebrating today. And we really want to encourage, you know, everyone in the country, especially those who are attending this event today, to speak for to speak up for health worker safety in your areas. And this specific um, theme is based on the number of health workers who were affected under the COVID-19 pandemic. As at the 11th of September um, this year, a cumulative number of 32,429 health workers had contracted coronavirus. We know that the, the, we might think that the majority contracted it outside uh, uh, their workplace. However, within the workplace, uh, this is where the highest risk is found for health workers to contract coronavirus. And unfortunately, 257 health workers had succumbed to the virus. So this makes uh, this year's theme around patient safety a very important theme in exploring the safety of health workers. So for this year, we are saying health worker safety is a priority for patient safety. The key slogan is safe health workers, safe patients, and we encourage you, you know, to speak up, to be advocates wherever you are in your area of influence. So for today, I'm going to introduce our first speaker, who is Prof. Ethel Wayne um, Stellenberg. She is the Associate Professor of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences from the Department of Nursing and Midwifery at Stellenbosch University. She is also the Fellow of the Academy of Nursing of South Africa. She is the National Chairperson of the South African Medical Legal Association and also the former board member of the Office of the Health Standards Compliance. If we were to put her CV as part of this presentation, we wouldn't finish. So this is a very summarized version of uh, uh, Prof. Ethel Wayne um, Stellenberg. In the province, it's not her first time. She has joined us quite a number of years coming in for symposiums on patient safety. And I know that for the past three years, she has been involved in building um, um, technical capacity in the, for the nurses, especially around, you know, healthcare risks and infection control processes and helping us to improve patient safety. Ladies and gentlemen, may we then um, offer this opportunity to Prof. Stellenberg to then take us through her presentation. Uh, Prof, you may um, upload your presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, done. You may proceed, Prof. We are able to see your slides. Thank you. So, is that okay? Um, let's, let's see. <laughs> good. So I could start. Yes, so good you may. Good evening, start, ladies. Prof. Can I? Can I go? Yes, uh, maybe, Prof. Prof before you start. If you can uh, put your PowerPoint on a uh, uh, full, um, I mean, uh, PowerPoint view, full yes. screen. Yeah. Thank you. Is it done? Yeah. Then I have to first. Mm. Prof, you can take your, 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 your. Oh, OK. 
Okay. Yeah, but I don't see it now. So I need to see it also. So now there's something wrong here. I don't see my own presentation. So can I just do this again? So I'll okay. click on it. You may share and then I can help you to navigate what you need to do. Okay, but I need to I need to see my uh, I had it right now just now. So let's try yes. again. Okay. Let me just go. Out. Let me stop screening and then I'll see. Uh, yes, it's coming through fine. slowly. Okay. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Prof, if you can navigate your mouse cursor. Is that okay. Can you navigate your mouse cursor down, down, down? Just navigate down, Prof. Down. Uh, to the lowest down point, yes. The, um, the then to the right slowly, to the right slowly, Prof. Want, Sorry about that. Again. You. There are the four right. small squares. Again, okay. to the right. Yes, there, Prof. Yes. Click there. Can I yes. go? Can I click yes. on this? Yeah. Yes, Prof. Thank you. All right, there we go. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Right. It is really a great pleasure to share with you some thoughts about patient safety. It's a really a critical issue in, in, in our country and in our hospitals. And, you know, this couldn't have come at a better time than now that uh, we have this very special day that has been uh, coined for, uh, to think of our healthcare workers. So the ILO, I just want to do something here. The ILO has dedicated this day for patient safety. Can I just uh, um, remove, I just want to have the one screen, one hide the thumbnails. Okay, let me do that, otherwise I see all of this. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so the ILO, just if I could go back to that, has dedicated World Day for Safety and Health at Work 2020 in addressing the outbreak of infectious diseases at work, in particular on the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'll quote that. And I want to take you to the slide, you know, that um, it's always a horror when we hear of hospital-acquired infections, and specifically Klebsiella pneumonia, and the heading that Every now and then we hear of our babies die of Klebsiella pneumonia. And between April 2005 and June 2005, 26 babies had positive blood cultures with Klebsiella pneumonia and one with Klebsiella oxtoca, of which 22 died. Recently in Tembisa, based on the latest information from 1st November 2019 through to 16 January 2020, 22 babies were diagnosed with a Klebsiella Klebsiella pneumonia bloodstream infection, and 21 babies were infected with carbon penum resistant Klebsiella pneumonia strain. 10 deaths have been reported. Now we normally used to get shocks of this, and this is our babies, and it's also the elderly, and today, the 17th of September, I do remember my aunt, who three years ago also passed on at the age of 77 due to Klebsiella pneumonia, and that was a hospital-acquired infection. Now we have COVID-19. In December 2019, 
when things were happening and we became aware of what was happening in China, many of us that are aware of these kind of problems and what will hit us at hospitals became scared. Uh, excuse me, I'm one of them. I was so scared and I thought to myself, being having served at the Office of Health Standards for about six years, I knew what was going on in the hospitals and uh, the standards that we were applying. And were we ready for such a problem that's going to hit the world? And bearing in mind that planes take off almost every minute at, very, at big uh, airports. And it did, it basically took us. And I want to also say thank you to the government of the day, is that they did an enormous task in trying to curb that we didn't have really a, a, an outbreak a pandemic that hit the country so badly that we'd never come out of it. And firstly, I'd like to also acknowledge the health workers. We are indeed thankful to the frontline health workers who through their commitment and dedication took up the challenge to care for those patients who were hospitalized due to COVID-19. They, they did this without hesitation. They are not superhuman and equally so vulnerable to be infected with the virus. They have sacrificed their time, their families and continue to do so to be with the patient and sadly, Many have succumbed to the virus. Thank you for being there for the nation. We salute you. Amnesty International called the worldwide death toll of over 7,000 health workers, and I quote, a crisis on a staggering scale, unquote. Mexico topped the world with 1,320 health workers having died of COVID-19. The US is second with 1,077 confirmed deaths. The UK is third with 649. South Africa, as Lesejo has just mentioned, reported 11, on the 11th of September, a cumulative total of 32,429 healthcare workers detected with coronavirus, and sadly, 257 succumbed to COVID-19. In times of war, the soldiers are well equipped and protected before they are sent to the battleground. It will be disastrous if not provided with their PPE. Why don't we have 100% PPE for our health workers? They too are at the front line. The battlefield in confrontation with an invisible enemy, which is even worse than what they have for the soldiers. I want to bring your attention to risk, the James Reason's risk modeling about latent failures that we have in our work environments. There's organizational problems, influences all the time, unsafe supervision, preconditions for unsafe acts and unsafe acts. And these latent failures are there for, for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And people would say, we've always done it that way. Until one day when we have a problem and we have mishaps, and we have adverse events, which cost patients lives or patients go out of hospital disabled. And I'm going to share with you some research that we've conducted in the, over the past four years. It was an audit analysis of malpractice litigation cases in nursing practice in South Africa to improve safe quality patient care. And I acknowledge my co-workers, which, is, which I have listed. With the emphasis on adverse events, 
tried to share the severity of the adverse events using the severity assessment code. There are 325 trial bundles that were audited. And I had a PhD student who assisted and two master's degree students. And this slide tells you that all of these, these, these adverse events, most of them, in, most of them were extreme, a total of 70%. The private sector, 39%, and the public sector, 89%. Major, you can see it drops because we don't have as many. You know, we go to something like 17% for total and moderate, uh, moderate 10%. But mostly extreme cases were identified. So it's actually the, really the bad cases that lawyers take up to look at. My next slide is just to share with you the outcomes of patients due to these adverse events. Again, 325 trial bundles. And if one looks at the total, is that the quality of life of these patients in 76% were affected. Increased hospital stay, 71%. Disabled, 54%. And then there was death of 9% of the patients and 26% additional surgery. Now this is South African data. I thought I'll put the emphasis on this because we haven't yet shared this on a public platform was this research was just completed the beginning of this year we had finished it. So you're quite privileged to see some of these results. And if you compare private and public, is that in the public sector, is that the quality of life of 80% of the patients are affected. And you are, more dis you are more likely to be discharged from a public hospital with a, disabled, with a disability. This is what this, the, the 325 cases showed us. In comparison to the private sector, it was 69%. And increased hospital stay, totally unacceptable because this is where we are spending our money, which is unnecessary. We can do so much more in, in improving the quality of care for our patients. There we have in private sector, it was 79%. In the public sector, it was 67%. Disability in public sector was 71%. In the private sector, it's 25%. And then the contributing factors to these adverse events, most of it happened at the bedside. Clinical, 73%. These are uh, when nurses and doctors don't respond to the clinical manifestations that patients are displaying. Poor monitoring, 74%. Failing to apply guidelines, 91%. And I must say this came through in all of the, the, in all of the studies that we did, both in public and private, it was 91%. And in the pilot study, that stood out, failing to apply guidelines. Failing to give treatment as prescribed, 50%. Incorrect treatment, 16%. Accumulation of omissions, 50%. Accumulation of errors, 42%. System failures, 22%. Behavior, 27 Lack of supervision, 18%. Lack of training, 19%. And the lack of knowledge, 28%. Who are responsible of these health workers? It's mostly doctors and nurses. We haven't found any other health care professional 
in any of these cases. Nursing only basically contributed to, and I look at public, it was 14%, in private, 43%. And one wonders why, 43% in private, because the results showed that many of the nurses delayed in calling a doctor. They would try and do what they can. And on the whole, the total is 25% of these cases of 325. Medical only, 7% in public, 12% in private, and 9% the overall rate. What stood out is nursing and medical is at 71% in the public sector and private sector 43% and the overall rate is 61%. And the others are smaller numbers. So no wonder we have 104 billion rand litigation pending in public health care service in 2020 because we have so many things going wrong in our health, health environments. And it's not just that there's been negligence, but the systems are failing our health care workers. At the frontline health care workers, health workers face complex clinical environments. And it is the right of a health worker to pr practice in an environment that is conducive for safe quality patient care and, uh, and to ultimately save lives, especially during COVID pandemic. The patients have a right to be cared for in a clinical environment that is conducive and therapeutic for safe quality care. Their right to quality safe care should never come in conflict with that of the health workers' rights to practice. And a classic example here is where PPE was not provided to pay to nurses and to doctors. And healthcare workers just basically had tools down. They're not going to work. That is very sad. The provision of, of PPE and the conducive and safe work environment will enable frontline healthcare workers to carry out their duties if ensure that the appropriate PPE is provided at the appropriate level of care. And I want to quote what the National Department of Health has, says in one of the, uh, yeah, one of the, the articles that I read, we reiterate, no PPE, no work. The norms and standards regulations applicable to different categories of health establishment, number 67 of 2018, was basically promulgated in 2018 under the section 1991A of the National Health Act 2003. And these regulations were implemented last year. And I specifically want to highlight the Infection Prevention Control Program Regulation 8. And it says the health establishment must maintain an environment which minimizes the risk of disease outbreaks, the transmission of infection to users, healthcare personnel and visitors. Take note, ladies and gentlemen, it's the law that says that this should be done. And if they don't, there's no compliance with the law. For the purposes of subregulation one, a health establishment must ensure that there are hand washing facilities in every service area, provide isolation units or cubicles where users with contagious infections 
can be accommodated, ensure there is clean linen to meet the needs of users, and ensure that healthcare personnel are protected from acquiring infections through the use of personal protective equipment and prophylactic immunization, immunizations. This is very critical, this uh, regulation, and it has to be unpacked by experts in the health institutions and, uh, because it's very brief, but it's very powerful. And there's a lot to be said. How will we go about ensuring that there's personal protective equipment for health workers? Not to basically take any Dick, Tom and Harry to provide PPE. And then you find that even the sanitizer didn't contain any, any alcohol. Those were the many things that went wrong during this pandemic. And I hope that we will go and look at all the wrongs and identify the problems that cause the death of so many. And sometimes I think there were negligence. Three nurses were put out of their jobs in the Eastern Cape. They were told to go and they insisted, we don't have PPE, we need PPE. But they were told, no, you are dismissed. That was unfair, because if they were contaminated, they would have contaminated others. And this is because of the lack of knowledge amongst leadership and managers. So there are, there are six things that I normally link myself to for safe quality care, and it's a comprehensive approach, is that leadership and management, they should really know what they're doing. And they should provide true leadership and management skills. They should be competent in what they are doing. The Office of Health Standards, standards through their, the inspections that have, have identified that this is our biggest problem in our country. And if that is a problem, as was also condoned in our project work in Mapumalanga in the Northern Cape, where, these, where the operational manager was saying to us that this program should also be offered to the leadership. And it's no wonder we had so many problems during this last six months and probably continue to, to happen. Organization and administration, critical. Procurement, to know that we don't have all of these strings that links to that and to say, yes, we have, we have, we've done that. We're waiting and we're waiting. We need to look at this. How quick can the PPE get to our health workers? The environment that must be conducive for face, safe patient care. And of course, the behavior, the 21st century problem should also be eliminated and the clinical care to make sure that the people, that the staff that we have at the bedside are equipped and skilled and competent and that we look at the training of our staff in service training and more so, and as I speak, this current year, we have so many problems with reference to the, the getting our regulations uh, promulgated to get uh, to basically to get the training of specialists in nursing to be done. So at the moment, there's probably one or two universities that are training specialized nurses, Stellenbosch University being one of them, nobody else. So we have a big problem. And I go back to 2001 when Carter Arsenal also decided to close out to close down so many of our nursing colleges, a critical problem, which we cannot get to. 
And because of that, it had its effect now in this COVID-19. Why didn't they close off all those classes where we have 500, 600 BA students sitting or BCom students? Why didn't we decrease that? Because they walk around with our jobs today, but we need nurses. We need health professionals. So in conclusion, health workers are regarded as essential service, service pro providers, legally and ethically bound to be with the patient. They should not be exploited and driven to go and strike. There should never be any conflict between the rights of the patient and the rights of the healthcare workers. Employers must ensure that they are protected against, especially the COVID-19 pandemic. Infected healthcare workers infect co-workers, and this in turn leads to infecting their families and communities. It's a ripple effect if we don't protect our health workers. Budget cuts should not override the safety and well-being of healthcare workers, as this may affect safe quality care of patients. And lastly, ladies and gentlemen, the evil of the day to guard against corruption, to make sure that we don't have loop in the system in, in, in basically getting people to tender or even give them the tenders and they're not equipped. Do your checks, cross check these people. Go and see because suddenly during this pandemic, we had all kinds of people popping up and saying that they are specialists in the field. So I want to acknowledge Dr. Lesejo Mavela. Thank you so much for the invitation, Dr. Sekola and the Department of Health in Mpumalanga. No patient safety without worker safety. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Prof. You can unshare your presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Quite touching and a bit emotional, but thank you to bring it back to us at home. And then so as people at the ground, we can understand what are the statistics, logistics at heart. Quite shocking to see that 200, 257 health have succumbed to COVID disease purely by things that we have mentioned and factors that we have mentioned, and which is a very upholding. Also shocking to see the adverse events that happens in the public sector versus the state sector. 89% vis-a-vis 39%, surely something needs to be done. And I'm glad you also alluded to the factors of training, lack of equipment, lack of protective equipment, lack of working equipment, you know, the cleanliness and environmental factors. I must say, and uh, the participant could not agree with me more, that uh, sometimes we compromise our health so that we can help patients. And sometimes it becomes a difficult situation where you have to decide whether you wait for PPE or you have to help the patient. Prof, thank you so much. I've already received 100 questions to you. <laughs> so let me know waste time because time is not on our side. We'll take questions at the end of the last speaker, but we really appreciate your effort and your time. Thank you so much. Without any further ado, uh, let me call upon the second speaker of the night. And thank you, Prof. You'll take your questions later after the, everyone is presented. The next speaker with us is Dr. Muzi Zungu, 
who is a public health medicine specialist with a strong interest in occupational health. He is for COVID-19 committee, previous ex-medical and a commissioner in office for compensation for occupational disease. I think Dr. Zungu, you must have they are still waiting. Dr. Zungu, please share your slides and take us through. Thank you. Uh, good uh, evening, uh, colleagues. Um, and uh, thank you to the team for inviting us to come and talk today. I am, uh, wish to apologize that my video seems not to be working, but uh, I hope that uh, the audio is fine. Uh, is it fine, Chair? The audio, could you hear me well? Thank you, Dr. Zungu. We can hear you well. We can see your slide very well. You may proceed. Thank you. Um, I, I, I am from the National Institute for Occupational Health, um, as well as uh, the University of Pretoria. I work there as a, a public health medicine specialist, uh, and I'm here today to talk about uh, um, the very important topic of uh, health workers' safety. Um, I am fully aware, and I want to thank uh, uh, Prof um, for giving us a very great presentation and which has given the platform for us to relate the importance of health worker safety uh, on a day like this where we are supposed to all of us be putting the safety of our patients as number one more than anything. Um, but it is important to understand that the patients will never achieve um, a, a safety if the health workers are not safe themselves. So I, I, I will just carry on from there. So today, what uh, I would like to share with you, uh, colleagues, is, is first uh, the context under which health workers uh, work. And, and, and this is important, um, even though today we are commemorating World Patient Safety Day, um, we did agree that we will talk uh, on the importance of the role of health workers and their safety during this day and how it impacts health, the health and safety of the patients in the facilities. So it's important that we see the context under which health workers work. Um, I will then touch a bit um, on what is in place to protect health workers at the moment in different health facilities. And then we'd move on to um, talking about uh, is the hope under the current conditions for health workers and what can be done as well as uh, what can all of us contribute towards improving the occupational health and safety of health workers so that we uh, impact the safety of our patients in a more positive way. I thought that I should start with this slide because uh, uh, when we think about health workers, we always think of health workers uh, in terms of Dr. Mawela, when in actual fact, um, the WHO, they define health workers 
um, to include from the cleaner to the porter, as well as uh, to the clinical uh, colleagues, which would be the nurses and doctors and um, other colleagues within the health facility. And we know that the bulk of our people, before they get to work, they have to travel to get to hospital. So by the time they get to hospital, they would have gone through a number of things that would have affected them as individuals and a number of things that would have affected their psychology. So it is important to understand the context um, under which they will get to work and have to provide a sympathetic as well as a friendly environment uh, to the patients. But when they arrive at the workplace, they get confronted by this picture. This is a picture of destitute. There's a number of people who do not look very, very happy. They do not look um, exciting to be where they are. And you have to just wonder how long it is going to take you to get through each one of them. And in many instances, as if you look carefully through uh, the window, I'm not sure if you are able to see my cursor there, there are people also on the outside. So that suggests that, you know, the morale of the health worker is already diminishing and, and is diminishing because of the environment in which they find themselves. But if you go within health facilities, this is a picture that was in a newspaper in the past weeks. Uh, this is in one of the hospitals in Gauteng. This is a maternity ward. And we all know that in maternity ward, in order for you to do your work properly, you need to have space and you need to have privacy so that you can be able to afford the dignity to the patients that they deserve, so that you can be able to provide um, the service that is of a high professional standard um, with the care and quality that every human being deserves. But if you look at this picture, you could see that every bed is occupied. The waiting space is occupied by a number of people, meaning that the patients themselves are not in a good state. But you can imagine what this working environment is doing to the health worker. Of course, of course, um, um, it, there's somebody talking. I'm not sure if they are talking to me. Is there a problem with my um, audio? Chair? No, all of my colleagues are you. Thank you. Okay. No, thank you. So, so not only is the problem in the waiting area or in the maternity, but if you look at this picture, this is the picture under which health workers find themselves. Of course, we know that uh, during this pandemic that we are going through in the early days, uh, this was a familiar picture. Over and above the COVID patients, you would have the trauma patients. And after the president uh, um, uh, opened up the alcohol for slightly, there was this picture again for a brief moment. Hence, the country had to go back to uh, closing down alcohol. Now, the conditions that I have painted for you, they lead us into this slide. In that, if you look just in the casualty slide only, you find that there are five main hazards that can lead to health outcomes. And by health outcomes, I mean diseases 
for health workers. And it's not the diseases that I've listed here that are of importance. These are just a few that I, could, I, could, I thought I should tell you about. The first thing is that if you look at the waiting area um, and you look at the casualty and you look at the Manitoba Ward, there is ample biological hazards there. Biological hazards will come in the form of COVID-19 at the moment. They will come in the form of tuberculosis as, as long as we can remember in our history. But of course, there's a hepatitis B virus, which also kills a number of people in our country, and it goes undetected. If you go back um, and you look at where health workers work, there are economic problems, and those economic problems, um, I mean, when I used to work in a casualty, uh, when I worked in a casualty for a long time, I never understood until I was in occupational health that the reasons for me suffering a chronic lower back ache every day, what was the problem? And that was associated with me bending down and suturing on beds that are not movable, on beds that cannot adjust to my height. And that caused me a lot of problems with my back. And I was on medication for a long time. But of course, there is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to touch, which is psychosocial hazards, mental health and occupational stress. And I'm, ha I'm happy that in the panel that uh, is going to speak today, there's somebody more qualified than I am. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Of course, there is also violence and physical trauma associated with working in hospital. And there's a lot of chemicals. Some of these chemicals can lead to asthma and some of them can lead to dermatitis. And of course, the silent problem of spontaneous abortion for our healthcare workers who happen to be ladies in their reproductive age. So what I'm trying to paint here is that we have all of those problems and the ways of solving these problems are known. It's not that we do not know what to do. And um, if you look at this slide, um, if we start from the top in the pyramid in particular, uh, in occupational health, we have a hierarchical way of uh, solving problems. The first problem is if you identify a hazard, you must eliminate it. You, you must take that hazard away completely. Um, and and if, if you can't do that, then you must substitute it with something else. Now, patients cannot be eliminated. We cannot say there should be no more patients in health facilities. So we are unable to do that part. But we cannot also substitute patients who come with infectious diseases or patients who come with um, things that may lead into uh, uh, us getting infections. Um, so we have to deal with the patients that we get. But there's a lot of things after that that we can do, including engineering controls. And this is important, particularly um, on diseases that are, are airborne and diseases that are also uh, through uh, uh, um, contact, um, in, such as COVID and, and, and tuberculosis, for example. But we can also do what I would like for simple terms to call housekeeping. And housekeeping essentially is administrative and workplace uh, practice. And when you look at the pyramid, as you go down, the effectiveness of your intervention decreases. So as we come down to PPE, we realize that the effectiveness is dropping drastically. So you can imagine that PPE is the least important. It's, it's when 
everything else has not worked that we rely on PPE. And this is important because the discussion and the debate around the amount of money we keep hearing that was lost on PPE in South Africa during this pandemic, it must also raise questions whether should we have been spending so much money and losing it to corruption on something like PPE? But of course, PPE, because it's visible, we can see it. It's something that everybody thinks is the place to go. Um, but I want to apologize for this slide. Uh, I thought I should put this slide because it will give us a, a dipstick as to what was happening in April, May in health facilities in South Africa. Uh, we did a dipstick survey um, in facilities and in Pumalanga. This is a slide from facilities in Pumalanga. It was, these are eight hospitals that we went to in Pumalanga. What I want to emphasize is that all the red parts are things that should not be happening. But if you look at the first column, all the blue parts is things that the employer can do, but there is a bigger role of the health worker themselves to do. Now I'm raising this so that we are able to balance the situation and to realize that in order for us to improve health worker safety, we have to rely on the employer to do their part, but we as health workers must meet the employer halfway through by complying with reasonable instructions in the, in, in the workplace. So for example, in terms of ventilation, natural ventilation, we went to visit these facilities at a time when there were no rains and it was not rainy and it was not cold, but windows were closed or they were not looked if they were open or not to allow ventilation into the, into the hospital. These are things that one, if there are windows and doors in the appropriate spaces, then the employer has done their job. For the windows to be open, the workers must open the windows where they work. But of course, the employer must still teach them and tell them the importance of this. Mechanical ventilation, we can just say that is non-existent. And this is, the import, is, is something that the employer can do. Um, and, and, and it's very expensive to maintain. Um, and we often in many places where we find that people say there's mechanical ventilation, it isn't actually mechanical ventilation. It's an air condition because somebody gave a tender through corruption again, Prof, like you said, to say that there should be ventilation and people confuse the role of a fan, I mean, of an air conditioner to, to, to mechanical ventilation. Of course, as I said in the, ta in the tablet uh, 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 previously, that there are things that are administrative housekeeping, things like social distancing. Uh, we were very disappointed to see that health workers are not social distancing. Of course, they need to have the infrastructure to do so, um, which was not always in place, but we're impressed that the facilities in Pumalanga at the time were providing markings indicating what was social distancing. So there's many things around this. If you look at the bottom, it's not clear. Uh, there's things about wearing PPE correctly. People are not wearing PPE correctly. And now there's the employer responsibility to teach people and train them on how to use PPE properly, but there's also the responsibility from health workers to use PPE appropriately. So it is important that we do something about this. Um, now COVID-19 has an impact on health workers and the impact on health workers affects patients. And Prof spoke about this to length and I'm sure it's still gonna come. But I thought it the first, the very, very important one 
is that COVID-19 has caused death. A number of health workers have died and we are not going to get them back. And in the system in South Africa, we do not have a surplus of health workers. We have a shortage of health workers, be it nurses, be it doctors, we have a shortage. We cannot afford to lose them. And of course, there's many studies on prevalence of depression, anxiety and insomnia among health workers because of the fear of getting infected with COVID-19 and what might happen as a result. So all of these things are things that we should always keep in mind when we're thinking about health workers and their safety, especially under the current circumstances of COVID-19. Now, what is available as statutory uh, documents for the protection of health workers? South Africa is known for having a lot of policies. Now, there is a number of policies I cannot go through them, all of them, but I decided to just show the three most important at this time for me is that number one, even if we do not have much, there is always the constitution and under section 24 of the constitution says everyone has a right to an environment that is safe to them. That on its own gives health workers something to work with. But of course, beyond that, um, there is the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which clearly outlines the responsibilities of employers. That would be the Department of Health, in this case in the public sector, but it will be the different uh, providers in the private sector. That every employer shall provide and maintain, as far as reasonable, practical, a working environment that is safe and without risk to the health of his employees. And that includes health workers. And of course, during this time of COVID-19, the Department of Employment and Labor has released a direction, which is law, um, on what is expected on the workplace in order to protect people from COVID-19. There's numerous documents that are provided by the Department of Health and so on. Um, now, what can be done under COVID-19 to protect health workers? Number one, in an emergency like this, you need to do things differently if you are going to help the health and safety of workers. So what was important was that uh, we should have a health and safety strategic committee set up, which has the management leading it, but working hand in hand with workers through organized labor so that workers can have a voice in this. You needed to resuscitate if they were not working or make sure that your occupational health and safety departments and infection prevention and control departments in the hospital are at their optimal during this time. You need to make sure that you relook at your policies and standard operating procedures because those are going to give a voice to occupational health and safety services for the health workers in the hospitals. Because without the policies, then you are playing and we might as well just not do anything. But the biggest challenge has been finances. Many hospitals will employ a poor nurse and say to them, you are an occupational health and safety for the, for the hospital. Or they will say you're an infection control coordinator and give them no resources, no budget to do their job. That is a crime to me. And of course, you do need to have the right resources to help you do your work around this area and be able to use information to inform your decisions. For example, if you realize based on your information that you have so many workers in casualty who are now off not coming to work because they have the infection, you need to go back 
to investigate what's going on in the casualty. What can you do to improve the situation? And of course, your program for occupational health must have things you do before people get infected, like doing the health risk assessment, which I'm not going to go into detail about, but you must educate and train the workers about what is it that they face every day when they go to work. And then you must have health promotion programs to communicate this risk to them, but you must work on behavior change. Unfortunately, South Africa has a lot of people with information, but behavior change is a problem. And of course, there must be medical screening. When people are already infected, you must find them early and you must respond appropriately. You must put them, make sure that they are given the opportunity to access treatment. And if there are possibilities that they may not be able to quarantine because we're dealing with a pandemic, you should provide uh, the opportunities for them to access the services that will give them quarantine and isolation facilities. I cannot overstress the possibility of rehabilitation to prevent complications. If you think about the fact that you've been to hospital because you had COVID, you, were, you, you had undergone ICU, you were intubated, and then somebody come, you come back later, a month later, they tell you, you must go and be in casualty. It cannot be so insensitive for an employer if they were to do that to you without putting you through proper rehabilitation. And in the event that you, had this, uh, uh, you, you have to be uh, sent into the uh, compensation commissioner, you must be submitted there and be given the appropriate leave, not just your sick leave all the time. You must be get the appropriate leave. There is many documents guiding us about what to do for health workers during this time of COVID. I cannot finish the list. They are available in the websites of the NIOH as well as the National Department of Health. Please go there and see those documents. I'm sorry uh, for taking so long, but uh, um, 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 uh, with the short time that is available, I will stop there. And these are the contacts if you need to get further communication. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, um, Dr. Zungu, for taking us through this uh, important topic. There are very important issues, you know, um, that you have raised. One is that we tend to forget that health workers is a broad range um, of uh, people, you know, from the security guard at the gate to the, you know, the most uh, respectable specialist um, in that facility, including non-clinical managers um, who are mending, you know, healthcare services. I think where we need to really have a, a discussion is the issue of, you know, the responsibilities, you know, especially what is the responsibility of the employer and what are the responsibilities um, of us, you know, as employees or as health workers, especially because we have noted that even when certain systems are put in place, we as health workers, we tend also, you know, not to adhere to that. But then there's a lot of questions asked in the chat box around accountability. You know, as you explain to us, you know, different um, systems and policies and committees that need to be in place, at the end of the day, who is going to take accountability when there's a, you know, minimal, you know, adherence or compliance to such? So these are some of the, the, the issues you have raised. And I, it was quite interesting also to look at the hierarchy of controls 
and that PPE, which is a, an intervention that works at the personal level, does not necessarily work that well if administrative and policy issues and the basic things that we need to put in place are not in place. So I think uh, this uh, presentation has challenged us and there's quite a number of discussion points we are going to have. So just to appreciate um, your, your, your presentation. At this point in time, colleagues, I want to welcome Dr. Sharon Munyaka. Um, she holds a doctorate in industrial psychology with over 19 years um, experience, specifically in positively transforming behavior in the workplace. I think we need more time with Cheryl because from Dr. Zugu's presentation, it sounds like uh, issues of uh, behavior are also an issue. She has worked uh, in multiple industries and she's able to influence change at an individual level, team level, and also at an organizational level. Dr. Sharon Munyaka, um, I welcome you. Um, I know you couldn't join us early, but you're welcomed. You may share your screen and take us through your presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lesefo, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for this opportunity, you know, to engage with you this evening. So the psychosocial and mental challenges are very real to all of us working in the sector. And my first point of call is really to acknowledge each and every one of you for the work that you are doing. It cannot be easy but you wake up every day and you go back. You are putting your lives at risk for all of us, for all of us to be here. And we are so thankful for the work that you are doing. So really just to, to acknowledge each and every one of you for that. Now we speak about you know, the psychosocial, what is that about? Uh, I think there are other voices coming through. Okay. So a lot of the time when we deal with the psychosocial challenges, we're saying who is at the front line? Who is this individual who is supposed to show up at work, deal with all these adversities and still show up in the best version of themselves? So I wanted to start off with the check-in round just for yourself, you know, and the questions that I have for all of us this evening is how are you? Thank you. How are you and what is present for you right now? You can just think about that question for yourself. You can type the answer in the chat. Another question I want you to think about and just hold for yourself is what are you discovering about yourself during this time? We've heard the different conversations around PPE. We've heard your lived experiences in the different institutions. If we just put that down for a little bit, how are you? And what is present for you right now? Just want you to take a moment to think about that and say, how am I really? going to leave the questions up for a minute for you to just think about that. If you have a paper and a pen, you can just write down the questions for yourself so you can reflect on it a little bit later. What are you discovering about yourself during this time? Could be something that surprises you, something that you didn't know before, 
something that has been elevated as a result of COVID-19, what are you discovering about yourself? And you can just make a note to check that out. So often when we are in the face of adversity, we don't think about ourselves. And if we look at all the documentation that has been presented, the conversations that the previous speakers have spoken about, we forget about the individual. We forget about the self-care. Our job is to go there and take care of everybody else. But what is the implication for us? What do the long hours do to our emotional state? What do the long hours do to our physical state, to our mental state? And how does that impact on how we can support our patients? How does that impact in terms of our ability to stay safe from the virus? Right. It's going to move on. I hope you've taken note of those questions. So these are just some of, you know, the thoughts that come around when I was looking at what medical professions are facing, you know, what, what's been happening and all of this has been discussed already, so I won't belabor the issue anymore. These images seem familiar. And all of these are very real to you. And when you look at this, I want you to just notice what is happening in your body as you think about what has been happening in your particular institution. So I want to pause here for a little bit and talk about the feelings that you are experiencing. So when we speak of the psychosocial, we're saying, what is happening for me mentally? You know, our body is not there to just transport the head. Our body has a purpose. Our body gives us information and tells us when something is not okay. Do we have time to notice the different feelings that we're experiencing as we navigate this world that we have woken up to? As you're sitting or lying down, I want you to notice what you are feeling in your body. Just notice what is happening in your body right now. What is that feeling that your body is communicating to you? Some of you might feel this is quite esoteric. It's too fluffy. What is she talking about? I want you to just notice what's going on in your shoulders. What's going on in your back? In your stomach, what is the feeling that's there? What does it feel like? Just want you to pause there for a little bit. I can see the chats, but I'm yeah, I can't I can't read the chats. If there's a question, you're welcome to just jump in. Thanks, Dr. Sharon. Out of echoing, sorry. Uh, it's the experiences of health workers you're just sharing. Thank you. Great. So I want you to notice, right? What happens when you get when you go to work? I want you to start being awake to what your body is telling you. When you have to go to work every day, what do you notice about yourself? What do you notice about what's going on in your body? Start paying attention 
to that, right? Some healthcare professionals have said one of the most challenging things is that they're not able to touch their patients. And that's hard. That's hard because it's their natural inclination to want to comfort. It's their natural inclination to want to have that human connection. But they're no longer able to do that. So I want you to notice for yourself to say, what, what am I feeling? When I get into my workplace and there's this overwhelming sense of helplessness, where am I feeling it? Am I feeling it in my shoulders? Am I feeling it in my stomach? And what happens for me? Okay. Another thing I want you to notice is how you are breathing. You know, children are able to breathe from their stomach. As adults, we forget how to breathe. We start to breathe from our shoulders. So do you notice how you're sitting? Do you sit hunched up? You always look like you're ready to be in combat mode. Where are you rushing to? So I want you to pay attention to what is happening to you. How do you sit? How do you position yourself? Are you constantly in a hurry? Are you feeling anxious all the time? Is your stomach feeling unsettled? What is happening? So the brain and the body are connected and we rely so much on our brain and leave the body behind. And the body knows much sooner than the head. So there's something very powerful about being awake to what your body is telling you. So when I feel the tension in my shoulders, I know there's a heaviness. So what do I need to do when there's that heaviness? Can I name it? What is it about this situation that makes me feel that way? So today is to remind you that your feelings are valid, that whatever it is you're experiencing in your body, it's communicating to you it's signaling you to say something needs to change. If you're not sleeping properly, again, it's a message to say something needs to shift. I need help, right? You might also be carrying a lot of anxiety because you're afraid of infecting your families. That is valid. How do we start to have conversations that are helpful within the different spaces? How do we start to name and acknowledge the different feelings that we have in our different institutions? How do we as leaders of teams empower our staff? If I am scared, it's likely the next person is scared too. So there's power in acknowledging what we are experiencing and saying, yes, it's difficult to come to work every day and there's no PPE. It's hard that I have to take on another shift when I'm so exhausted. It's hard to see this much suffering. I am not managing to cope with everything that is going on around me. When you start speaking out, you can get help. When you suffer in silence, no one knows what's going on. And unfortunately, we keep pandering this thing of our heroes, our heroes. And some health workers have said, I don't want to be called a hero because it carries so much of a burden for me. I feel I have to do everything perfectly, but I can't. 
and when we lose patience and when we're not able to support everyone, I feel how difficult it is. So you need to be gentle with yourself because you are human too, just like all of us. Yes, you are doing very important work, but your emotional state, your mental state, your physical state all matter. So there's a term we use in psychology called emotional resilience. Emotional resilience is about the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, of trauma, of tragedy, threats or significant sources of stress. So it could be family, it could be relational problems, it could be health problems, it could be workplace and financial stresses, right? So resilience is that ability to bounce back. And I take it a little bit further and I say an element of courage comes with resilience. And courage is not only about the big things. Courage is having the ability to say, I'm going to try again tomorrow. I did what I could do today. I might not have gotten everything right, but tomorrow is another day to try again. So it's that ability to dip into those psychological resources that all of us have. And you can get them from different places. Maybe your family gives you that well of strength that you can drink from. Maybe it's your faith that gives you that well that you can drink from to help you have the courage to try again. So you have to take time with yourself and say, what will help me to have the strength to try again tomorrow? If I am not coping, where can I get help? Who do I need to be speaking to? Who do I need to alert to say, I am not okay, right? So what is emotional resilience? What is it not, right? So being resilient doesn't mean a person won't experience difficulty or distress. Actually, the road to resilience is likely to involve considerable emotional distress. So yes, you are going to be encountering difficulty. Yes, corruption is happening and it's hugely frustrating. We are so angry. So do you not see the impact of not having resources being channeled to the correct places? And yet there's still this important work of making sure we bring all of ourselves to work every day to help patients. And yes, some individuals are going to be more resilient than others, okay? So you must not be hard on yourself. All of us have different ways of coping. It's not a competition. So you must understand yourself and say, what do I need to help me to strengthen and to become better? So you need to have the strength to power through the storm and still keep the sail steady. So every day, an opportunity to try again and make sure that you can continue helping and doing the work that you have been called to do. And I'm almost done, I'm mindful of the time. So the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. Many things are going to be coming your way. Many challenges are going to be coming your way and you have to choose and say, okay, what can I focus on today? Okay, there's no PPE. Okay, 
if I'm going to get stuck on that thought, what is my ability to control or change the situation? What is realistic for me? Because sometimes we become obsessive over something we have no control over. So think about those things that you can do. What can you manage? You're short-staffed. What is realistic in that situation? So I won't pretend to understand your different institutions. The challenges you face are unique to you, and you are the only one who knows how you can handle it. The important thing is to be able to notice when you've had enough, to notice when it's too much. Listen to your body. You know, we get sick, but we don't get sick on that day. The signs would have started three, four days before. But because we're so busy, we're so caught up in other things, we don't even notice. Like, no, man, I had this headache. It started last week. If we were awake to what our body is telling us, we would have noticed the exact moment that it started. But we're busy running from one thing to the next. So it's important to remain awake to what is going on around us, be awake to what is happening in our bodies and to respond appropriately. So one resource that I found very helpful for healthcare workers, and some of you might have accessed this already, is the Healthcare Workers Care Network. If you go onto that website, you're going to see a whole list of resources, a whole bunch of us have signed up to give free sessions to health workers. You need to talk to someone. You log on and schedule a session where you can get someone to talk to. So help is available. You're not alone. You are doing incredible work under very difficult conditions and we see you. And it's okay to have days where you say, whew, I'm just going to pause here and try again tomorrow. We need you to be healthy. We need the best version of you to show up at work every day so that our healthcare system can continue to thrive. Thank you so much, Liseko. I'm going to pause here and allow space for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Manyunga Sharon. Uh, when you asked the first two questions, yes, I felt a bit of headache and back pain, <laughs> I must say. Truth be told, mental issues and stress, it's something that is not really has been taken serious before. Just mm -hmm. by mere virtue that it's not a physical disease. You don't see somebody limping, then you, are, you just assume that they are fine. I think it's something that we've, we've, we've talk, talked so much about in the province, and uh, we're taking quite seriously so. In the previous panel, we had discussion around that, uh, issues of psychosocial support and all that. But the question still remains across all board, all the provinces and all that, is there enough psychosocial support for our health healthcare workers? You know, initiative has been started before that uh, we should uh, start with our own wellnesses in our institution for biopsychosocial support. And I think that should be the approach so that one should be able to take care of themselves so that they can do their work efficiently. Thank you so much. Without any further ado, uh, I see we're running behind schedule. Let me introduce uh, Dr. Cheryl, who's our next speaker, Dr. Cheryl Nelson, who is a director of primary health care in Inkangala district. She holds a doctorate in public health and has been exposed to public health services for more than 36 years. That's my age. And <laughs> which means more than 12 years has been in the middle and senior management. Dr. Cheryl uh, shares extensive knowledge 
in and uh, proven experience in provision and management of public health. Uh, Dr. Cheryl, can you please share with us your fruit of thoughts regarding this matter? Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair, and good evening to everyone. I trust that we're all in a good space. And I'd just like to really indicate that we have ended the World Patient Safety Day 2020 on a very high note. And the theme, health worker safety, a patient safety priority, is critically connected. Health worker safety is a prerequisite for patient safety. And it is known that resources are prim primarily allocated to meet the needs of patients and medical technology often leaving the safety of staff and quality of work life issues unaddressed. Essentially, safe workers mean that a solid experienced work team is available and able to provide safe quality patient care. You know, in terms of the presentations, really all the presentations were excellent and also ch challenging with some very useful information, practical and informative. Thank you, Prof. Um, Ethel Winstellen, but you know, our take home message here is that really there should be no conflict between the rights of the patients and the rights of the workers. And uh, as you've said, uh, no patient safety without health worker safety. And Dr. Zumo, thank you. You've really covered the systems and policies that need to be put in place to improve patient and health worker safety. And it just really makes us realize the gaps in service delivery. Dr. Sharon Munyaka, I agree with Dr. Mawela that, you know, we really needed more time with you. Real, real food for thought. And thank you so much for acknowledging all the soldiers on the ground. And really, um, I was doing quite a bit of um, self-introspection and asking myself, do I have emotional resilience? I'm sure our listeners were also able to, you know, really look back and see their coping mechanisms and truly we really should not be hard on ourselves. You know, um, I just want to quickly share with you the re reality of the impact of COVID-19 on health workers, particularly in our district. As some of you might be aware that um, Kangala district is the COVID-19 epicenter in the province. Uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 has indeed impacted on our health workers, both on a physical and psychological level. And, you know, when I look at the psychological impact, really our health workers did experience, and some of them are still experiencing high levels of fear and anxiety. And, and the main fear really that they've had um, is still around the risk of infection. We all know that our health workers are more vulnerable to the COVID-19 infection than the general population, as they are in constant contact with infected patients. You know, we've seen that, uh, you know, their main fear was contracting the virus and transmitting the infection to family members. And um, whilst we are mindful of the stressful working conditions some of our healthcare workers are subjected to, it really, really does concern us. I know Dr. Zumu spoke to some of the issues around infrastructure, because within our district, uh, you know, some of our healthcare workers are subjected to, to the poor infrastructure that is old and, you know, in some instances not fit for purpose causing some of our health workers to even fear going to work. You know, those small waiting areas, those, uh, you know, ventilation challenges, issues around the limitation of resources. We know a shortage of staff really, really impacts where our healthcare workers have to deal with the unpredictability of their work schedule, which necessitated them to adjust to their private and social lives. Not forgetting the concerns, of course, around PPE. 
you know, in terms of quality, appropriateness and availability. Uh, we are actually uh, very fortunate in our province that we really, really did not run out of PPE. Um, you, we also noted that um, during this, uh, this period or this period, period of this pandemic, that we had to really look at our workforce, not only as um, you know, a workforce, but as family members with family obligations. So apart from the work stress that they had to deal with, you know, example, loss and, and, and grief, isolation from family and friends, uh, you know, these factors really, really um, impacted on their psychological um, well-being. Uh, in fact, we have healthcare workers that have had and are still experiencing elements of, of depression. And it is, becomes important that we remember that the consequences of stress, if not well managed, may last long after the pandemic and uh, may result in depression or post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. If I can just quickly touch on, on the physical impact very shortly, you know, we really witnessed quite a number of healthcare workers being infected and putting the already tight healthcare systems under high pressure. They were exposed to increasing work demands, more staff were not at work, the long working hours, not eating properly, loss of social interaction, exhaustion, really no, no time for proper doffing and donning. And I think this is what also uh, put them more at risk for becoming infected. And, um, you know, in fact, reading of guidelines and SOPs was just not really their priority at the time. So um, some health workers would actually constantly verbalize that they are feeling under pressure and not sleeping well at night. And uh, one other observation that I noted is that, you know, this experience really brought some of us closer to God. But in the midst of all this, it is important to note some of the initiatives that were taken by our, the Department of Health in Bumalanga province to care and support for healthcare workers. The Department of Health indeed provided training of healthcare workers on various aspects of dealing with COVID-19. And the training is continuous as we speak. Topics covered include, among other, infection prevention and control, use of appropriate PPE, doffing and donning of PPE, and, and so forth. And um, healthcare workers during this time were also provided with um, increased access to personal protective equipment. We were supported by our minds as well in this regard. Um, our healthcare workers were also encouraged to engage in various stress relieving activities in the workplace, including, you know, the Jerusalem Dance Challenge. Additional resources were provided uh, to improve the safety of working conditions. These included the appointments of COVID-19 professional nurses, as well as auxiliary nurses. We also had doctors from Cuba that were placed in, in some of our hospitals. In fact, there were only two. And as well as procurement of equipment. It's also important for me to indicate that as a province, we have strong political will and remarkable support. Our Honorable MEC for Health, Mrs. Sasekane Manzini, launched the healthcare workers psychosocial support strategy and screening of healthcare workers for non-communicable diseases. The theme was uh, healthcare workers lives matter. The aim of which was to provide and is to provide a platform for mental health support and early identification of comorbidities. We also have occupational health and safety committees established in all our sub-districts. Our hospitals including PHC facilities have nominated health and safety representatives and the aim here basically is to create an open, equitable and transparent safety culture for health workers 
and patients, which allows the reporting of safety incidents in a timely manner. Um, COVID-19 in our province is considered as, as an occupational health disease and is, and is managed accordingly. And if you look at the occupational health services that are provided, they include provision of medical surveillance, monitoring of chronic medical conditions, management of occupational injuries and diseases, mental health care and support services, and so forth. And we also have an employee assistance program available. And the program has established a, fo a forum to support employees. And the members of the forum include clinical psychologists, pastors, and cetera. And this forum basically provides one-on-one -on -one deep briefing sessions, as well as group debriefing sessions. We also have uh, established psychosocial support teams in all our hospitals. Um, I think it's also important for me to in also indicate that we have both provincial and district COVID-19 management and labor meetings, and these are basically to enhance employer-employee relationships. Um, the province, district, and local municipalities have established job meetings. We also have the district command council meeting that uh, is led by our political heads and includes sector departments, and they also look into issues of healthcare workers and how we are managing them as um, a district. Our district has also established the district and sub-district incident management teams who are responsible for then coordinating planning and monitoring COVID-19 activities. But I must also indicate that we've received remarkable support from the head of department and senior management in both the province and the district. And we have also during this time tried to strengthen internal communication through the use of different social media platforms that includes the WhatsApps and the Facebooks and so forth. And of note is that um, we also have a, a, a isolation site that has been specially uh, earmarked for healthcare workers. We introduced flexi hours to try and also, you know, make sure that our healthcare workers are in a good space and, and mind frame. I must also conclude by saying that uh, we have enjoyed great support from our partners, including our minds. And I must indicate that uh, Dr. Mawela, we are forever grateful for your excellent leadership and tireless support you provide to both the province and district. And, um, you know, although we are an epicenter in the province, I must just share with the House that we ha have had a 95% recovery rate. And Chair, I will pause here and also just conclude by recognizing and appreciating all our healthcare workers our soldiers for their dedication and hard work, particularly amid the current fight against COVID-19. Over to you, Chair, thank you. Yes, um, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Nelson, you know, for your words of support, but importantly for outlining, you know, the implications of COVID-19, you know, on our health workers. And uh, I also, you know, appreciate the response from the Department of Health, specifically in Bumalanga, around the different initiatives um, out there, you know, to support health workers. And I would want to really encourage health workers to explore, you know, the different platforms, the different um, committees. Uh, the MEC has launched um, an initiative to avail, you know, screening services for health workers to support their wellness, physical wellness, and also uh, mental wellness. So thank you very much, you know, for, for, for sharing. And what I really took home from your commentary, 
is that now, you know, as an employer or as a representative from the Department of Health, we now take our workforce, you know, as a family, and we are here to support each other and to work together to improve the health and safety of both the workers um, and, and our patients. At this point in time, colleagues, I want to welcome um, Judge Neil Slassen, who is a retired judge of the High Court of South Africa and currently is the non-executive president and mediator at the South African Medical Legal Association. He's not going to give us a presentation like Dr. Nelson. He's going to give us a commentary on uh, the presentation, but also his views from a medical legal uh, point of view. Thank you very much, um, Judge. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moelu. Uh, can you everybody hear me? Is my sound okay? Loud and clear. Thank you. Um, the South African Medical Legal Association uh, was started about 22 years ago, and it consists of all health workers of all disciplines, as well as legal <coughs> lawyers, advocates, um, professors in law, in order to bring the medical and the legal professions and disciplines closer to one another. As a professor, <coughs> um, uh, Ethel Wynn Stellenberg had said at the meeting, at, at the beginning, the outstanding claims is about a 104 billion rand instituted against hospitals. So uh, although I want to associate myself with the remarks made by the other speakers, especially Dr. Munyaka, to commend the service rendered by health workers, nurses, doctors, uh, yeah, everyone. It is a fact that there are some <coughs> problems in the rendering of that service, which leads to negligence and then that leads to litigation. And litigation is a very costly affair, uh, which means that uh, the funds awarded to hospitals and to provinces are almost um, depleted before proper healthcare facilities can be bought or renewed or restored or repaired. And that is a re very real problem. Uh, <clears throat> I want to make just one other short comment because I understand we were supposed to finish at half past. And that is <clears throat> being a nurse is a very, very difficult job. And it requires so much skill, uh, persistence, perseverance, uh, and love that I always wonder how many nurses are there in the hospitals who are really there because they have been called to that profession. Because nursing is a, a profession of calling. Just like other professions like teaching. To be a good teacher, you must be called to be a teacher. And so with nurses as well. But many 
of the nurses are not motivated by the calling. They are not motivated by the oath they had taken, the Hippocratic oath. Uh, and therefore, there is sometimes a lack of diligence and a lack of perseverance uh, which causes negligence. So I look at it from the legal point of view, realizing that there are so many stresses that influence the work of nursing. For instance, the lack of personnel, the lack of facilities, the lack of space, um, <clears throat> yeah, lack of ambulances, lack of uh, equipment, lack of PPEs, all of those are stressors which make the profession just that much harder and difficult. But you are soldiers and soldiers only win a war when they are motivated to win the war, when they are called to arms and they are called to the battlefield. And for every one soldier on the front line, there must be at least 10 others doing support work in the form of administration, funding, etc. So it's a very integrated and complicated set of <clears throat> individuals that are there to support one nurse uh, next to the bedside of patients. I, I want to ask the question, and that's where I'll end, is how does one change a person's attitude? If there is a person, a doctor or a nurse or teacher, for that matter, who are in professions that require motivation and the right attitude, and they don't have it because they regard their job as merely a job to earn money. How do you change that attitude? How do you change an attitude of nonchalance into one of dedication and perseverance to do not 100%, but 200%? And that's a very difficult question. But I would like to leave it there because uh, I see the time is up. Thank you very much for the opportunity of sharing a few thoughts. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Prof. Uh, I judge uh, new class and thank you for your, for your words of encouragement. Uh, I thought we were going to get in trouble about legal matters, but thank you so much uh, for, for your contribution. Of course, indeed, it's quite a difficult one, uh, how to change one's attitude, but we cannot overemphasize it further. Psycho social stressors plays a very important role in, in us doing our work, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, and pharmacists. And that's something that we've been stressing. Like I said before, it's not a physical disease. It's something that you cannot see. It's a mental illness or, or stress. Uh, so people tend not to take you seriously if you come and say, I'm tired. Or when you say, I'm, I've got anxiety, especially in the context of COVID-19. But uh, your contribution, your time, it's really appreciated. Um, colleagues, it's time for our questions. We'll take a few questions for five, 10 minutes, and then we'll close the meeting. Uh, I've got Dr. Nomtanda Zohani, 
who want to share experience and I've got a direct question to both Dr. Munyaka and Dr. Zungu related to compensation as well as stress. Dr. Zwani Nomtandazo, who's a COVID command lead in Wittbank Hospital, are you with us? Chairperson, can I just ask to be excused at this time? I need to leave. And thank, thank you. you. Yes, Dr. Thank you very much. Can you hear me, Dr. Skole? Yes, we can hear you. All right. So as healthcare workers, you rely on other colleagues. First, thank you very much to what everybody shared and what Dr. Munyoka shared and judge. It triggered something in me because as healthcare workers, you rely on other colleagues to look after your loved ones when they become sick. You dedicate 100% of your time and empathy to the patients with the belief that they are actually someone's loved one. I just got home now and I feel very overwhelmed when Dr. Monyuka was asking, how are you feeling? I'm feeling very overwhelmed. And the reason for me is on my way home, this was after 4 p.m., I received a phone call from a colleague, this was a junior colleague, stating that they're having difficulty with intubation, right? And this was after hours, and mind you, I am not on call. So it being a junior colleague struggling to get hold of a consultant on call, I made a U-turn to assist with the intubation. After the intubation, as I was passing, I, I went past one of the wards to see my pastor's father who was admitted yesterday for delirium. I found him completely naked, not even having underwear on, screaming for water. It made me feel like crying. And the reason for that, it was because that was the pastor left his father under my care with the belief that as the hospital, we're going to look after him properly. So I felt so overwhelmed that while I am in the COVID ward, looking after so many patients, I am hoping that my colleagues out there are doing the same for my loved ones. So the reason I'm sharing this is not that I want someone to feel empathy or to feel sorry or anything, but is that as healthcare workers, we also need to look after each other because I rely on my other healthcare workers to look after my, my, my loved ones as much as I'm also looking after other people's loved ones. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Zwani. Is uh, Dr. Munyaga still here? Can you intervene? <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge, you know, Dr. Zwani for speaking up. And you're right. This community needs to take care of one another. Um, this is where our Ubuntu way of life matters. You know, you didn't have to turn back, but you were there, all hands on deck. So look out for each other talk to one another, find ways of just checking in and making sure people are okay. And even with text messages, someone will keep putting a smiley face, I'm fine, I'm fine, but you haven't heard their voice. It's important to follow up to say, hey, Mjana, I keep on getting text messages, but I actually haven't heard the voice on the other end. Are you okay? Because sometimes people feel like a burden, especially when you're in the caring profession. It's so difficult to ask for help, but you also need to get help so you can be strong enough to help others. So thanks, thanks, Dr. Sefer. Right. Thanks, Dr. Minyaga. Just two quick important questions. Dr. Maua is asking, is Dr. Cheryl Nelson still in the meeting? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Dr. Sharon Nelson, Dr. Mauba, uh, one of the consults from Whitbank Hospital, he says uh, there was a team that has been sent to shout Mataka to benchmark. And they yeah, in their report, one of the other things that they've highlighted is that there's a universal use of PPE in that hospital. 
what is your take in advocating universal PPE for the province, meaning that everyone should wear PPEs? Full PPEs. No, well, as a province, we, we have a standard operating um, policy on the use of PPE. So we basically stick to that because um, the standard operating procedure that we are using is basically aligned to the World Health Organization regulation. So we basically comply to that, you know. So there is a relevant and appropriate PPE for different, um, you know, healthcare workers as well as, uh, you know, the different type of uh, procedures and uh, activities that they are doing. So the PPE is aligned to that. All right. In similar lines, same question from Dr. Mudiri. I'm not too sure which hospital is this. Says, what is your take in universal testing? Since that in other provinces, every patient who get to be admitted, there's universal testing for COVID-19 disease, especially in the context that 13% of the population is asymptomatic. Yeah, no, I agree with, with, with the universal testing because really it actually assists us as well as, as healthcare workers so that you know exactly what you're dealing with. So, uh, you know, we for that as a province. All right. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. I'm just passing the message. It's not my questions. Maybe you should need, need to speak to the province to send that memo to all hospitals that we advocate for universal testing, if that's what is the take. Uh, is the prof still here? Prof, yes, I'm still here. Question for you. Switch off your videos. The, the network is slow. All right, yeah. prof. The question is. Oh, sorry. The question is if I read through it, not in, in if I understand it, it says ethically, what does potential harm to healthcare worker outweigh the risk of a patient if he or she doesn't receive expected healthcare service. And what the question basically says is, if I've got an emergency and I don't have PPEs, on what grounds am I protected not to see that patient? Yes. Yes, that is, that is the million dollar question. We've been talking about that. I spoke to my students and with others as well. That what do you do when you're confronted with, with patients and you don't have PPE and you need to help? And basically when I was preparing this, I thought to myself, you know, nurses are, it's part of them that they even forget the dangers that's latched onto that. But at this stage in the pandemic, we are faced with other challenges. Is that should you become, if you should become infected with that one patient, and you didn't, you didn't take, you, you didn't have the PPE that you should have had. And you go away and you infect others. It becomes a ripple effect that more and more would be affected by just because of one patient. So you sit with, it's almost like between the devil and the deep blue sea situation now. What do you do? Do you save one and then cause a problem with others? Ethically, we are bound actually to, to, to take care of the patient. But in the, with, with the pandemic, I think it's going to be very, very challenging to basically try and save one patient now and you're going to be infected if you don't have PPE. So let's see what the others say because I also threw this question to the students last week and I said, what do we do? Because here we simply don't have anything. And, and uh, how do we manage that? 
What do we do in circumstances like that? Because actually, like the three nurses or three or five nurses in the Eastern Cape, they were discharged because they didn't want to help the patient because they said, look, I don't have PPE. So we cannot help because I'm, I'm, we're scared. We're going to become infected. Yeah. And actually, well, actually, they, they, they probably had the right to have refused uh, at that moment. Uh, to uh, there's somebody who's getting undressed and we don't want to see that. Can you please ask Sally to not undress in, on camera? Thank you. Sally, please help us. Uh, Dr. Mawala, can you move everyone's video? Sorry, Prof, about that inter interruption. I see a few hands, Radeve, Lavas, and Mohani. Maybe they can help us in answering that. Mr. Mohani? Um, thank you, Dr. Stole. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, I had comments of my own. Oh, no, we can take them. Thank you. Okay, if you allow me. Um, one is counseling of our workers. We, we have social workers that are unemployed. And I think it's high time now that the government look into getting us more social workers, getting more uh, for us psychologists to, to do counseling because we have gone through I think trauma, when, when uh, let me first acknowledge all the presenters, uh, what they presented was really empowering. And uh, we are even about to exit to, to we are now uh, from Sunday, we will be under lockdown level one. And I don't think we have planned to say, how are we going to assist, you know, all frontline workers. There are some that never, took leave, never took anything. They were always on duty because some of their colleagues had to fall on the way because of being affected by COVID. They went in and out and the likes. And what about them, the ones that they stayed on, 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 on duty all the time? We need some form of counseling. And the second comment or question is that it, it was painful, Dr. Scholar to see what uh, other, you know, the way we were taken, I don't know whether not seriously or whatever. Yeah. I'll give an example on the PPEs. You get PPEs that are written non-medical yeah. and somebody just dispatched them or they contracted somebody to give us PPEs that are written non-medical PPEs, your, 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 your masks. They are, they are the same as your surgical mask, but they are non-medical surgical masks. You get some that are written dust masks. And I, I think if it's written dust mask, that means it allows certain particles, uh, you know, the, the diameter of those uh, pores, you know, allows certain things. And I don't think they were meant to even block your, your, your microorganisms that we were dealing with. And now, you have somebody, uh, you know, approving, you know, such kind of, of mask. Uh, no wonder, you know, if we exposed our workers, you know, we gave them those masks, we gave them a false pretense to, for them thinking that they, they are being protected or they've been protected by wearing surgical masks only to find that 
is the wrong type of uh, surgical mask. Those will be my comments, Dr. Scholar. Thank you, thank you, quite important. Uh, regarding the mask, I think the province has noticed it a bit early and then some of those were recalled. Uh, it's, it's just an unfortunate situation. Uh, we apologize for that. Radeve uh, Lavas. Uh, Mr. Lavas, um, Yeah, I think it's open now. Hello, yes. can you hear me? Yes, Lavas. Yes, yeah, I, I don't have a question, but I've got a comment. When we listened to the president yesterday, she indicated quite openly that uh, uh, all inpatients will have to be tested for coronavirus. So it's not something that we can discuss about now here because it is it is an announcement which has been uh, has been said by the president yesterday when he was announcing the movement to 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 level one to say the recommendations are that all inpatients should be tested. So we are waiting for the department to give us a guideline in terms of how are we going to do that. But we are expecting for the department to quickly come with such guidelines so that we can uh, test all inpatients. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, especially in the context of surgical disciplines such as uh, ENTs, maxillofacial, where it's high risk and AGBs. So one would love to know whether there is COVID-19 or not before you embark on that kind of an operation. Thank you so much. Last question is do, uh, to Dr. Zungu. Two questions for you. One is about uh, compensation and another one is about danger allowance. Dr. Zungu, are you still in the meeting? Um, yes, I'm still here, Chair. All right. Uh, <laughs> this one is from Dr. Nomtanda Zwani. It says, she being one of the healthcare workers who have contracted COVID, it's been over two months. She hasn't got any compensation. What is the state in relation to that? Number two, are there any possibility of danger or risk allowance in future for such kind of pandemics? Thank you, we'll listen. Um, thank you uh, for the questions. Um, just starting with the compensation one. Um, the compensation, we must first remember that compensation is not necessarily money to the pocket. So if you are a health worker and you get infected with COVID-19 and you get reported to the compensation commissioner, they will assess and decide if indeed you are, uh, 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 you did get the disease because of the job that you are doing as a health worker. And once they've done that, they have to acknowledge that yes, you got the disease and it's an occupational disease. But you will be assessed if you have disability as a result of COVID-19, then they can provide uh, compensation in monetary terms. Otherwise, the compensation that they give after they approve that you are an occupational disease, is that they will provide medical aid for you to be uh, uh, access care. And it's usually they compensate what we have used because usually this happens long after this, it has happened. And the other thing to note is that if you work in the public sector, um, your compensation is not paid by the compensation fund. It gets paid by the province where you work. Um, so, so the role of the compensation fund is just to 
adjudicate if it is indeed an occupational disease. So, so it usually takes time, but uh, we have bi-weekly meetings with the compensation fund where they update us on these things. And they keep telling us that they are not receiving uh, submissions for workers who uh, get occupational diseases of COVID. So I do not know what is happening uh, with your particular case. It would be good to hear from the people in your health facility who have submitted you, because after they submit you, you're supposed to get notification of your case number. And then just moving on to the danger allowance. Yes. <laughs> what, the danger allowance is a very complex thing. Um, um, I am aware that at some point in my life, uh, we, we were asked to write a report on the danger allowance. Um, um, and the danger allowance for health workers related to COVID specifically, um, the organized labor, the unions, are advocating for it. Um, I must say it is a complex debate. I do not have a lot of information around it, so I cannot provide a, an informed answer when it comes to that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think those were the last questions that have been sent. I don't know if Prof or Dr. Cheryl Nelson know anything about compensation. Otherwise, I'll hand over to Dr. Mawela. Thank you, uh, speakers, colleagues, participants. Thank you. I hope I did not upset anyone in me convening. Thank you so much. Good evening. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Prof, do you want uh, to say something? No, no, I, I also want to just say thank you. We must also be prepared for the next year, two years or three years from now, that people will be sending, litigating the state or the public sector, private sector. That will come. Because suddenly you will also hear of, and I'm sure many of you heard of patients going to hospital and they were not positive, and they became positive in hospital. So they would regard that as an acquired hospital, acquired infection. And, uh, and they may... Uh, um, basically make a case against the state. And that, that's going to come, you know, the, I think there's going to be quite a few liabilities that's going to come. Yes, thank you, Prof. Colleagues, thank you, you know, everyone, our presenters also for participating until, you know, this time. The, our meeting went uh, beyond time by around 30 minutes. As I close, we are calling to action. We call for healthy, safe, and decent working conditions for all health workers amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. We call upon government, employers, worker organizations to institute measures for zero tolerance to violence against health workers at the workplace and at the way to and from their workplace. And for intensifying social support and to and the respect for health workers and their families. This is very important considering the anesthetist uh, who was shot, you know, um, who was going through a litigation case uh, where maybe they were going to win the case. I'm sure you know that they were shot on a driveway. I think this is something that happened yesterday. So it's still the responsibility, you know, of society to protect workers when they are at work, on their way to work, and issues of litigations really we must engage um, in good faith. And the last call to action is that we call for adequate staffing levels and clinical rotation in health facilities. We need measures to minimize psychosocial hazards and to provide access to mental health 
and psychosocial support for health workers. Colleagues, thank you very much for your participation. Dr. Zungu, Prof, um, Judge, and Dr. Munyaga, Dr. Zugole, for your honest, beautiful uh, uh, engagements. Uh, have a great evening. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you. Bye. 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 Good night. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>